Well, I am going to direct your attention to the passage that Brittany read. And uh, we'll take one of those, and we've got, I think, more than enough to go around. Um, I'm also going to print it here on the sheet for you so that you can track both the passage and uh, the train of thought. <laughs> But let me back up to uh, what we have seen in 1 Peter leading up till now. We've been studying 1 Peter together since uh, sometime in the spring, I guess. Peter wrote this letter to encourage suffering Christians with the good news that the same Christ who saves us from our sin will save us eternally from all the evils that threaten and harm us. And he says that God has chosen us and that we are scattered in the world, not by mistake, but for a worthy purpose. He says we have an inheritance that will never go bad, will never disappoint us. He gives us the good news that the temporary trials that test us will serve to purify our faith as fire purifies gold. He assures us that we can look forward with confidence to the, the grace of Jesus who has embraced us as his companions so that we can make known the goodness of him who saved us out of darkness and into his light. And we're a free people. We're free to use our freedom, not for evil, but for our beloved king. Last week, uh, as Darian was guiding us through the beginning of this chapter, we saw... Uh, in verse 4, that the result of this good news is that we don't have to dress up in a shallow beauty that's only about appearance. Instead, Christ gives us the inner beauty of a gentle spirit which is eternally valuable. And Peter speaks specifically to women who are at a disadvantage in society. Women whose own husbands do not affirm Jesus' work in their lives. If you look at the words in the passage, this isn't about a suppression of the female gender. This is about the good news. Always is. And this isn't a theory. I want to give you a living example. My grandmother, Mabel Shelley, came from an extremely difficult background. Her family was broken by alcoholism and abuse and poverty. And that's all that she knew. And when she was a young mother, she walked into a church service and she heard the good news that Jesus saves us from sin. And Mabel knew what he meant. She did not want to continue in the life that she had always known. So she trusted Jesus as her Savior and she wanted her daughter and her son to know Jesus too. But she had a very bitter husband, my grandfather, who at first didn't even allow her to go to church or take children with her to the church gatherings. But that didn't stop her from reading her Bible to them and praying for them, telling them about the Jesus who had saved her. And that was the environment for the childhood of my dad and my Aunt Marge. Now, they had a very stern, very severe father who knew that life in this world is hard. And they had a mother who also knew that, but who also knew Jesus. And even though she couldn't do a lot about their outer circumstances, 
She had an inner beauty that reflected a gentle spirit even in the hard world. Now why? Why did Mabel envision something good for her children even though her entire background had been so hard and her own husband denounced her faith in Jesus? Well, verses 18 to 22 are really answering that question for all the Mabels who have embraced the good news of Jesus even when their circumstances are still hard. So I'm going to read again what we read earlier. Uh, which uh, version were you reading, Brittany? Which translation? The NIV. The NIV, okay. New International Translation, um, which I affirm. That's a great translation. In fact, there's a lot of great translations. But I want to read to you what you have printed on your page as well. And uh, I can guarantee this is not the same version that Brittany uh, read, because this is my own translation <laughs> of the passage. This passage is so difficult and complex that I tried to take it phrase by phrase and break it down so you can follow along with me just how complex it really is. So starting at verse 18, uh, because Christ suffered concerning sins once, righteous over unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God, being killed in flesh, but being made alive in spirit, verse 19, in which he went proclaiming to spirits in prison, verse 20, who before were unconvinced when the patience of God waited in the days of Noah preparing an ark, into which a few, eight souls, were saved through water, verse 21, just as now you are saved by what immersion symbolizes, not a removal of dirt from flesh, but a good faith appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who, having gone into heaven, is at God's right hand, and spiritual messengers, authorities, and powers are deployed at his command. What? <laughs> are, are, are any of you as confused by that as, as I am when I just read through it like that? Even for the most accomplished scholar, this is a tough paragraph to work through. And it reminds me a little bit of uh, the book Anguished English. I don't know if any of you, especially teachers, have ever run across Richard Letterer's collection. He was a teacher who started collecting things that people would write on tests. Uh, students would, would write on tests. Um, and some of these uh, I find hilarious. I'll just read a few of the sentences. Um, Ancient Egypt was inhabited by mummies. They all wrote in hydraulics. They live in the Sara desert, which has a climate such that the inhabitants have to live elsewhere. <laughs> the desert has to be cultivated by irritation. Uh, you get, you know, the picture. English can be a confusing language. This portion of 1 Peter can sound as confusing as that. What on earth is Peter talking about? At first glance, you get this confusing reference to Jesus preaching to spirits in prison, and then suddenly we're with Noah, and then we're in baptismal waters. And if that loses you, don't feel bad. Nobody understands this sentence without carefully sorting out the pieces. So let's start with the pieces that we know are clear from the rest of the Bible, and then we're going to look for the meaning in the confusing parts, okay? Uh, and believe it or not, I offered to take this passage for Aaron um, uh, because I thought you might feel my pain that way. Uh, let's look at verse 18 again where it says, Jesus died 
once for sin, the righteous over the unrighteous to bring us to God. I want to point out four things here that are fairly clear in all the Bible. First of all, Jesus died for my sin. Uh, Christ suffered for our sins, verse 18 says. As the Bible explains, sin is our main problem. Because sin is anything that damages our relationship to God. And that's a serious problem because God is our life source. The giver of every good thing. And when we think or speak or act in a way that damages our connection to the source of eternal life, then what we're really doing is we're hacking away at our lifelines. We're cutting ourselves off from the giver of every good. So Jesus came to address that problem. He came to die. And the reason he died was to deal with the sin that was killing us. The Bible calls God holy. And holy means that God is all good. And because God is all good, then he is distinct from anything that is not all good. God isn't mostly good. He's all good. He's completely, purely good. And all that he decides to do is good. And because God's all good, then acting against God means we're, we are against ultimate good. And he created everything. It's all his. So anytime we ignore what God decides and we do something with his creation as if it did not belong to him, then we're cutting ourselves off from God. We're separating that from the one who makes it good. It's not about God being angry, it's about the kind of relationship with him that we have. So let me put it this way. Suppose I'll, I'll choose um, Aaron, since he's not here. And suppose Aaron gets angry at me for no reason and hits me and breaks my nose. And you're already understanding this is theoretical because you can't picture Aaron doing that. And while I'm trying to breathe through a broken, swollen nose, I say to Aaron, I forgive you. But then imagine Aaron says, well, forget it. I forgive myself. Now, we would say, wouldn't we, that he's not really understanding what forgiveness means. Uh, the point of forgiveness, uh, someone can't receive forgiveness by himself for what he's done to someone else. That misses the whole point. Forgiveness is about the injured person releasing you from the debt that you owe for the damage that you've done. If I forgive Aaron, I'm not saying that the attack doesn't matter. I don't want him to go on breaking my nose. I'm saying that even though it was bad and it makes it more unreasonable for me to trust Aaron, I don't want that to ruin our relationship. Forgiveness means I want a good relationship, so I do not want to keep the injustice between us. And if Aaron rejects my forgiveness, and then he insists that he has the right to decide whether he's forgiven or not, then he's saying that he doesn't really care about me or the relationship. Now, let's imagine a third person. Let's say Brittany steps in and she says, Listen, both of you, stop arguing. I will forgive you both. Well, then she's not really understanding the situation any better than Aaron, is she? Because a third party can't mend a broken relationship between two other people. Until the two people are committed to a mended relationship, then the relationship is still broken no matter what anybody says. So that raises the question then, how can God forgive us the wrongs that we have done to others 
he can offer us forgiveness because God isn't a third party. God is always the first party. He created us for good purposes. He initiated the relationship. He even gives us relationships with other people. It's one of the first things we see in the book of Genesis. And we've rejected and ignored Him. And even when we hurt others, we are attacking His creation. So we're wronging God first and foremost. And if God doesn't actually mend the broken relationship, then we're still cut off from our life source. We're not capable of fixing the problem by ourselves. We need God to restore our connection to Him. And God couldn't simply say that doesn't matter because that wouldn't be true. Everything that brings more evil in this world matters. So we need God to call evil what it is, and we need Him to bring forgiveness and heal the relationship. And all we can do is agree that it matters and embrace His forgiveness and trust Him to bring our restoration. And if I say, well, I'm not really that bad off, then I'm saying that the God that I have wronged really isn't that important. And that's a lie. He's all important. He's infinitely valuable. And since I've vandalized that which is eternally valuable, I can't fix the relationship on my own. I can't make up for that. I need a God who is powerful enough to redeem my mess and merciful enough to forgive me, to wipe the slate clean. I need a God who can pay the infinite price for the infinite debt that I owe and who has the grace to do that for me. And that's what we find in Jesus. That's the good news. God came to us in the flesh, into our history, into our geography, and He gave His infinitely valuable life in place of mine. And He wears the wounds in eternity so that I don't have to. He's my Savior forever. So, first thing we see here is that His death was for sin, our sin. As verse 18 says, Second, once was enough. Christ suffered for sins once. Since Jesus is infinitely valuable, He doesn't have to keep redying for every person and for every sin that we commit. Once was enough. Once means His death was sufficient to accomplish all the forgiveness for all time, for all the guilt, for all who embraces forgiveness. No other sacrifice is necessary. Do we comprehend how significant that is? That, that covers everything. God did not deal with our sin flippantly. He dealt with it at great personal cost. His death was horrible beyond imagination. When verse 18 says he was killed, it translates a word that really means a brutal death. He had been whipped so severely that his back was a mass of shredded tissue. Many people died from the fogging before ever getting to the cross. He was thrown down with that shredded back against the rough wood of the cross, and the soldiers placed a large square nail on the depression in each of his wrists and then drove it into the bone joints and into the wood and then the cross was lifted up and dropped into place so that all the body's weight was hanging on those two nails. And the feet were placed one on top of the other and another nail was driven through the arches of both feet into the wood and to push up in order to relieve the shooting pain in his wrists. He had to put his full weight on the nail in his feet and the weight on his arms and the stretching of his chest muscles would mean the air was restricted. It was hard to breathe. His lungs would begin to feel the pain of suffocation and to catch a breath. He had to push up again on the nail in his feet. And whenever he did that, he was scraping his lacerated back against that wood up and down, up and down. And the Gospels say this went on for six hours. 
and then add to that the shame of being nailed to the cross naked, and add to that the cruel taunts of the hateful people who watched him die, who put him there, and then the sins of the whole world. And that's what Peter sums up when he says he was put to death. Jesus didn't deserve any of that pain. And God was not required to enter into that suffering. But he chose to do so, so that our relationship to him could be restored. And that's relevant to people going through some very painful times. Peter keeps pointing out that God's not distant from our pain. He knows personally, he knows intimately what we feel. So Christ died for sin once. And third, still in verse 18, the death that Jesus died was triumph and substitution. It says uh, it was righteous over unrighteous, or the righteous for the unrighteous. Now that, that really suggests two things. It suggests first that righteousness is triumphant over evil. Evil's temporary. But righteousness is forever. For at least some people, suffering will end and eternal goodness will reign forever. That's what we are promised. The phrase suggests, well, first of all, that triumph over unrighteousness, but it also suggests that someone righteous took the place of someone unrighteous. Now, what does righteous mean? Well, any surfer knows, right? Righteous means all that you could hope for it to be. As in, in righteous way. That's what the word means. All that it was meant to be. All that it was created to be. And we haven't yet come close to being all that we were created to be. In fact, we've made a mess of the lives that God gave us. We've trashed His creation. We've fatally damaged our relationship to the one who loves us most. That's the mess that we're in. So the only one who was not in a mess got into the mess with us to save us from it forever. So righteous came out on top of unrighteous. And fourth, he did it for a purpose. His purpose was to bring us to God. Verse 18 also says, the word that translates bring here was a word picture both for the Jewish people and for the Greek people whose language was originally used to write this. The Jews had a ceremony, it's described in Exodus 29, in which the, the Levites were officially brought to God and set apart as his priests. When people came to the temple, they could get only so far. If you were uh, uh, not Jewish, then you could enter the first court of the temple, and that's as far as you could get. If you were a Jewish woman, you could also enter into the second court of the temple, and that's as far as you could get. And if you were a Jewish man, then you could pass through the court of the women and into the court of the Israelites, and then you'd have to stop there. And only the priests could proceed on into the court of the priests, and only the high priest could go into the most holy place. But Peter said back in chapter 2, verse 9, that we're a chosen people, we are a kingdom of priests because of Jesus. If we know Jesus as our Savior, that means we all have access. We all get to go clear in to the holy place. We all have direct access to God because Christ died to bring us to God. That's what verse 18 is saying. And that same word gave the Greeks another picture of what is meant because in Greek, a bringer, that was a technical term for an important member of the king's court. And the role of the bringer was to decide 
who could come in to meet with the king? Peter says, Jesus is the bringer. He laid down his life in order to bring you to the king of heaven. You've got access now to God because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus suffered for our sins once for all, the righteous over the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Now think about that. Nobody else has done that for you. That's unique. And that's not your religion. That's a Savior who is eternally enough to overcome all your needs. There's no better place to be than in Christ. So in verse 18, we see four things that are the good news all the way through the Bible. Over and over again, the Bible keeps pointing out that good news. Now that's our context, right? So with that in mind, with the message that runs all the way through the Bible, let's see if we can make sense of some things that are very confusing at first, first glance. So I'm going to zero in on three. First of all, who were the spirits in prison? Verse 19 says, being made alive in spirit in which he went proclaiming to spirits in prison who before were unconvinced when the patience of God waited in the days of Noah preparing an ark into which a few, eight souls, were saved through water. I've run across a lot of different interpretations of these verses, and the problem with most of them is that they give a meaning that has almost nothing to do with everything else Peter's been talking about. Context is what, for those of you who are in Darian's house church? Yeah, that's right. Context, context, context. It's not going to make sense if it doesn't fit with everything else that's being talked about here. So, what's Peter been talking about? This verse has to make sense in the context in which Peter's audience can have been expected to understand it. I'm willing to listen to other interpretations. I'm always interested in listening. But so far, I've only run across one interpretation of this passage that makes good sense to me. So, I'm going to try to help you see it too, starting at the end of verse 18. Jesus was killed in the flesh, but he was made alive in spirit. In John chapter 4, Jesus says, God is spirit. So being alive in spirit is no small thing. If Jesus was alive in spirit, he wasn't less than physical. He was far more, just as God is far more than his creation. So move into verse 19 then. In spirit... Jesus delivered the message of judgment and salvation. And many reject the message. And the people who reject Jesus are not mere mortals. They are themselves, in some sense, everlasting spirits. And, in some sense, they're in prison, this says. So perhaps they are imprisoned in their own self-centered perspectives. Or perhaps they're imprisoned forever, unable to know the freedom of heaven because they've rejected the truth when they've had plenty of opportunity to enter into salvation. Verse 20 says that long ago these spirits in prison were unconvinced when Noah was preparing an ark. And I think unconvinced is a better translation than disobeyed because the word that's translated here is not the common word for disobeying. It's not so much about an action that you perform as it is about the faith that motivates your action why you do what you do. So the point is, people heard the warning of judgment and they rejected both the message and the messenger. They didn't heed the message. They didn't listen. They didn't want to know what was being told them. 
And in spirit, Peter says, Jesus was the one proclaiming to these spirits in prison. Because back in the days of Noah, they were unconvinced when God was patient with them. And this isn't quite clear to us yet, perhaps, but we're starting to get a picture of the, the players involved, right? And what's going on between them. Peter seems to be thinking of the story of Noah in Genesis 6-9. through You can read the whole story for yourself. But what was that story about? People were so evil that God decided to put an end to it. He was going to wash the world clean with a flood. It's interesting, we sang a lot of washing clean imagery in those songs. I want us to come back to one of them at the end. Um, but God was still patient. God gave a fair warning. In fact, He told Noah to tell people that judgment was coming and that He was providing a way of escape. So we, he said there's going to be an overwhelming flood and I want you to build a massive ark. And then he waited patiently for years and years and years and years for people to turn to him. He had lots of time to return to the Lord before judgment poured in. And Noah listened and he built an ark. And he told people what God said, but they didn't listen. Instead, they ridiculed it. In fact, Noah was persecuted, which makes him an important figure to bring up when Peter's writing to people who are being persecuted for the message that they're sharing. Right? It was the same Spirit of Christ who preached to those people through Noah, and God was offering them salvation by listening and trusting Him, but they didn't listen, and they didn't trust, and they rejected God, and now they are imprisoned souls because they wouldn't listen to God. So only Noah and his sons and their wives, eight people, were saved. So Peter reminds us of that because in his day and in ours, the warning and the offer of salvation are being proclaimed to everyone. The whole point of verses 19 and 20 then is that Jesus has been warning people for a long, long time that evil will not be allowed to continue. It will not have the final say. And it will be stopped and that they must listen to God's provided way of salvation so they can be saved from that judgment. And here Peter is writing to a small persecuted church, and he's already reminded them of the gospel through which they've been saved, and he's been telling them how they are to live, not to give in to the world that mocks their faith, but to keep their eyes fixed on the Savior, as Noah did, knowing that what he tells us is true, and Noah's story reminds suffering Christians that opposition isn't new for God's people. We suffer. We get discouraged. But we're wise to remain faithful because there's no better place to be than in Christ. And many reject that message and the messengers who carry it. But God saved Noah through the waters of judgment. And we're reminded of that salvation in, interestingly, the waters of baptism in which we appeal to God on the basis of the risen Christ. And I translated baptism as immersion, because that's literally what it means. But if you're Presbyterian and you want to you know, make a case for sprinkling, I'm okay with that. <laughs> but God saved Noah through the waters of judgment, and we're reminded of that salvation in the waters of baptism, in which we appeal to God on the basis of the risen Christ. So what does baptism or immersion symbolize? It symbolizes our identity with the risen Christ. Verse 21 says, Just as now you are saved by what immersion symbolizes? Not a removal of dirt from flesh, 
They're not just taking a bath. But a good faith appeal to God through the resurrection of Christ. God made a way for us to be saved through Jesus. The verse 21 sees an illustration in the experience of Noah and his family. In Noah's day, people had rejected God and God had warned of a flood and people suffered and, excuse me, people scoffed at Noah for, for taking God seriously and people drowned. But Noah and his family were saved. And Peter points out specifically in verse 20 that only eight survived. He's writing to people who feel ganged up on in a difficult world. And he's making an important statement. Do you want to go with what's popular? Or are you going to remain loyal to the Savior? If you're in God's service, it's not a disadvantage to be a small rejected minority. So look at the parallels between Noah's story and ours. Noah lived in a sinful world, and so do we. And the people in Noah's day were given a warning, and so are we. And God was patient with them, and he's patient today. And Noah was told how to be saved, and so are we. And Noah was persecuted for trusting God, and so are we. And judgment was coming on Noah's world, and it's coming on ours. But those in the ark came out alive, and those in Christ will also. So for Noah, water represented death through which he was saved. And for us, in baptism, water represents death and our rising from it in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's through the risen Jesus that we can appeal to God for salvation. So verse 21 says, The act of being washed over by water is not what saves us. It's the risen Christ who saves us. And we identify with his resurrection through rising out of water. We come to God through Christ. There's no better place to be than in Christ. And verse 21 says that this immersion is a pledge or an appeal. And that term needs some explanation because in Peter's day, important relationships including included a public statement to make the relationship binding. A little bit like for us, a wedding ceremony or perhaps being sworn into office might be. It would include a statement such as, do you accept the benefits and the demands of this agreement or this relationship? And that question would be read aloud before witnesses and the individual would answer, I do. And only then would the agreement be considered final. And Peter uses that word to describe the act of baptism. He says, it's not water that saves you, but it's the pledge that you are making to God before these witnesses. The water symbolizes God's justice carried out, and rising from it symbolizes the resurrection of Christ through whom we are saved, and doing this as a public act professes that this is a binding relationship. And baptism is meant to be then our answer to the question, do you accept Christ as your Lord with all the benefits and demands that come along with being a member of his kingdom? And that's a powerful statement. You are getting identified with something eternal. And Peter points out why we make such a statement. Because here's the third thing to make sense of here. Who's the ultimate victor? There's a hint in the last verse of the chapter. It's not the devil. Okay. Even though it seems like Satan's got the upper hand, he's not in charge. So you are saved, verse 22 says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, having gone into heaven, is at God's right hand, and spiritual messengers and authorities and powers are deployed at his 
command. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? So no oppressing, harassing, deceiving, accusing, tormenting, disruptive demon is free to do as he pleases without limit. The devil himself is doomed to be cut down forever because all angels and all authorities and all powers are subject to Jesus the King. In Peter's epistle, if you go over to chapter 5 and verse 8, you'll read, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in faith. What faith? Well, the faith in Christ who died on the cross for your sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, where you will see the risen Christ who is complete sovereignty over all angels and authorities and powers. So to return to our original question then, why is this passage in the Bible? Because for people going through hard times, it's the most important thing for you to know. Look at what it says right after this passage in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, his earthly human body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. What attitude? That this pain, this frustration that you experience, this harassment is very short-lived, but the love of God is forever. No comparison. In fact, no comparison is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. There's no better place to be than in Christ. Our situations don't always look safe. But true safety isn't in the immediate circumstances. It's in the goodness of God. Some of you know the story called uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Four children stumble into the land of Narnia, and they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who try to tell them about Aslan, the, the king, the Christ figure of Narnia. And the beavers describe him as a great lion. And Susan says, well, is he safe? I feel nervous meeting a lion. And Aslan uh, is described in an interesting way here. Mrs. Beaver says, oh, oh you will feel nervous, dearie. If, if anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. So Lucy repeats the question, then he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver exclaimed, safe? Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver was telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good. And that's it. If we think that knowing Christ means that we're going to be spared of all pain and all discomfort and all inconvenience in this rebellious world, then no, he certainly isn't safe. He's not a leprechaun to keep in your hat to grant you wishes when you want them. And if that's what you mean by safe, then no, he's not safe. He is the Lord of heaven and all creation who took on human form and endured the cross and died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's who He is. And He welcomes us into His kingdom to trust Him with our loyalty and our partnership and our future. And He calls us to stay with Him despite all the opposition and all the difficulty because He will triumph. And His will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, let me go back to that living example that I gave you. My grandmother, Mabel, kept speaking the truth in love to her impoverished family, despite the opposition of her own family. 
and she died at an early age. I've never met her in person. She was gone before I came on the scene. But her daughter became the first in the family to actually get a college degree, and then she went on and picked up a master's degree in seminary and spent 40 years in Congo and the Ivory Coast sharing the good news through personal relationships and editing the only Christian publications in all of French-speaking West Africa. And her son went into the army where an army chaplain taught him what it means to be in Christ, and he went on to college and to seminary and then a PhD and spent the rest of his life training pastors and missionaries and a lot of other people, and that was my dad. And all Mabel's grandchildren grew up to serve the Lord, and all of her great-grandchildren have been involved in ministry. And her antagonistic husband, my grandfather, he eventually trusted Jesus as his Savior. And it turns out, Peter knows what he's talking about here in chapter 3. Is Jesus safe? Uh, maybe not by your definition, but he's good. He's a giver of eternal life. There's no better place to be than in Jesus. 